Brethren, it's wonderful to be with you tonight, and I certainly welcome those who have been added to the general authorities this day. Elder Richard Scott, the Quorum of the Twelve, President Richard Clark, a newly sustained member of the Presidency of the First Quorum of the Seventy, and these outstanding additions to the First Quorum of the Seventy from whom we've just heard. Years ago, brethren, many of us participated as participants or spectators in what was known as the All-Church Basketball Tournament and later the All-Church Softball Tournament. The most coveted prize was not to be adjudged the first-place winner, but rather to receive the Sportsmanship Award. The applause of the audience was louder and longer, the smiles broader and more universal. A goal beyond victory had been won. Lately, we have received at the Office of the First Presidency some letters which tell of serious arguments on the part of participants on the basketball floor or the baseball or softball diamond, name-calling by parents, and abuse of referees by spectators and coaches. We have room for improvement, brethren, and improve we must. In the videotape produced by the Church and entitled The Church Sports Official, there is featured this truth from the First Presidency. Church sports activities have a unique central purpose, much higher than the development of physical prowess or even victory itself. It is to strengthen faith, build integrity, and develop in each participant the attributes of his Maker. Brethren, it is difficult to achieve this objective if winning overshadows participation. The recreation halls in the buildings of this Church were provided by the faith and the tithing of the members of the Church. It is only fair, therefore, that worthy young men and worthy young women, all of them, have an opportunity to play, to learn, to develop, to achieve. It is not our objective in the sports program to develop clones of Larry Bird or Magic Johnson or coaches who are clones of John Wooden or Pat Riley. When you put a player in a suit, put him in the game. Basketball begins soon, and let our teams of young men and young women be counseled appropriately. And a word or two for the spectators, the parents and the coaches would not be amiss. If I might add a personal touch, I share with you an experience which embarrassed, a game that was lost, and indeed a lesson in not taking ourselves too seriously. First in a tightly contested basketball game. I remember the second half had just begun and the coach sent me in with a key play. I dribbled the ball after taking the inbounds pass, reached the key, and let the shot go. And then I realized why the opposing guards had let me through. <laughs> I was shooting for the wrong basket. I offered a silent prayer, a quick prayer. I simply said, Dear Father, don't let that ball go in. And you know that ball rimmed the hoop and fell out. I was relieved, but from the bleachers came the call. We want Monson. 
We want Monson. We want Monson out. The coach obliged. <laughs> I never was a basketball star. What timing to be a freshman at the University of Utah when All-Americans Arnie Farron and Vern Gardner dominated the boards. I fared much better at fast-pitch softball. My most memorable ball game was on a hot Memorial Day afternoon, pitching a game that went 13 innings when it was scheduled for only seven. The tie could not be broken. It was the bottom of the 13th. A runner on third base, two men out, and I forced the batter to hit a high pop fly to left field. A certain catch, I thought. It went right through the hands of my left fielder. The run scored. The game was lost. Brethren, for 38 years, I've reminded my friend and teased him about dropping that ball. <laughs> I promised I would never do so again. In fact, I'm not going to mention to you his name tonight. But he lives in Brigham City, and his initials are J.H., and he's my age. But it was only a game. On another occasion, I was pitching a softball game in Pioneer Park in Salt Lake City. To my amazement, the opposing team placed at the batter's box a batter who had but one arm. Now, how does a self-appointed hotshot fastball pitcher hurl the ball to a batter with one arm? I tossed a gentle lob over the plate. To my amazement, Bernal Hales, that one-armed batter, swung that bat with skill and hit a single right over the second baseman's head. I was furious. I waited for the next batter, Homer Proctor. Return missionary from Mexico, six foot two, 190 pounds. I gave him a high inside fastball, and he put it right out of Pioneer Park for a home run. I looked at the ball as it sailed over Third South Street, and then I looked at that one-armed runner, smiling all the way as he ran from first base to second base, and then third, and then streaked for home. I felt like crying. But then I broke out laughing, and pretty soon all of the players on both teams began to laugh with me, and we had a wonderful time. Brethren, let's take the necessary steps to rekindle sportsmanship, to emphasize participation, and to strive for the development of a Christ-like character in each individual. Now there are other phases of the Lord's work where all members can participate where the growth of character is assured and the promise of life eternal bestowed. One such endeavor is referred to as the welfare program. Actually, the language of King Benjamin from the Book of Mosiah provides a perfect scriptural description, even a solemn charge, to each of us. Listen to the words. For the sake of retaining a remission of your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor, 
every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and administering to their relief both spiritually and temporally. President Marion G. Romney spoke concerning the funding of caring for the needy when he said, It has been and now is the desire and the objective of the Church to obtain from fast offerings the necessary funds to meet the cash needs of the welfare program. At the present time, we are not meeting this objective. We can, we ought, and we must do better. If we will increase our fast offerings, we shall increase our own prosperity. This the Lord has promised, and this has been the record. Are we generous in the payment of our fast offerings? That we should be so was taught by President Joseph F. Smith. He declared that it is incumbent upon every Latter-day Saint to give to his bishop on fast day an amount equivalent to the food that he and his family would consume for the day and, if possible, a liberal donation to be so reserved and donated to the poor. President Spencer W. Kimball suggested that in our generosity we go beyond a minimum amount. He urged that instead of the amount saved by our two or more meals of fasting, perhaps much more, ten times more, be given when we are in a position to do it. The generous response of the Latter-day Saints in times of crisis is legendary. Many will remember the emergency aid provided our needy saints in Europe following World War II. Our own President Ezra Taft Benson directed this effort. I am a witness of that which took place in war-ravaged Europe and the blessings which that generosity provided the members. More recently, this generosity has helped to avert starvation in Africa. Irrigation projects, producing wells, improved agricultural methods are all part of a dream come true. Similarly, at the time of the Teton Dam disaster in Idaho, the response of the members to the call of need was overwhelming. Today, in lands far away and right here in Salt Lake City, there are those who suffer hunger, who know want, and are acquainted with poverty. Ours is the opportunity and the sacred privilege to relieve this hunger, to meet this want, to eliminate this poverty. The Lord provided the way when He made this declaration, and the storehouse shall be kept by the consecrations of the Church, and the widows and the orphans shall be provided for, as also the poor. Then the gentle reminder, but it must be done in mine own way. In the vicinity where I once lived and served, we operated a poultry project. Most of the time it was an efficiently operated project, supplying to the storehouse thousands of dozens of fresh eggs and hundreds of pounds of dressed poultry. On a few occasions, however, the experience of being volunteer city farmers provided not only blisters on the hands but also frustration of heart and mind. For instance, I shall always remember 
the time we gathered together the Aaronic Priesthood to really give the project a spring house cleaning. Our enthusiastic and energetic throng assembled at the project and in a speedy fashion uprooted, gathered, and burned large quantities of weeds and debris. By the light of the glowing bonfires, we roasted hot dogs and congratulated ourselves on a job well done. The project was now neat and clean. However, there was just one disastrous problem. The noise and the fires had so disturbed the fragile and temperamental population of 5,000 laying hens that most of them went into a sudden molt and quit laying. Thereafter, we tolerated a few weeds that we might produce more eggs. No member of the Church who has canned peas, top beets, hauled hay, or watered corn in such a cause ever forgets or regrets the experience of helping provide for those in need. Sharing with others that which we have is not new to our generation. We need but to turn to the account found in 1 Kings to appreciate anew the principle that when we follow the counsel of the Lord, when we care for those in need, the outcome benefits all. There we read that a most severe drought had struck the land. Famine followed. Elijah the prophet received from the Lord. What to him must have been an amazing instruction? Get thee to Zarephath. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. When he had found the widow, Elijah declared, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her again and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. Her response described her pathetic situation as she explained that she was preparing a final meal for her and her son, and then they would die. How implausible to her must have been Elijah's response. Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail. This is the faith that has ever motivated and inspired the welfare plan of the Lord. Industry, thrift, self-reliance continue as guiding principles of this effort. As a people, we should avoid unreasonable debt. In a message which President Benson delivered at a general conference 30 years ago, he instructed, and I quote, in the Book of Kings, we read about a woman who came weeping to the prophet of the Lord. Her husband had died, and she owed a debt that she could not pay, and the creditor was on his way to take her two sons and sell them 
as slaves. By a miracle, the prophet enabled her to acquire a goodly supply of oil, and he said to her, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt and live. Pay thy debt and live. What wise counsel for you and for me today. Remember, brethren, that the wisdom of God oftentimes appears as foolishness to men. But the greatest single lesson we shall learn in mortality is that when God speaks and a man obeys, that man will be right. We should remember that the best storehouse would be for every family to have a year's supply of needed food, clothing, and, where possible, the other necessities of life. In the early Church, Paul wrote to Timothy, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. It is our sacred duty to take care of our families, brethren. Often we see what might be called parent neglect. Too frequently, the emotional, social, and in some instances even the material essentials of life are not provided by children to their aged parents. This is displeasing to the Lord. The Lord's storehouse includes the time, the talents, the skill, the compassion, consecrated material, and financial means of faithful Church members. These resources are available to the bishop in assisting those in need. Our bishops, bless them, have the responsibility to learn how to use properly these resources. May I suggest in summary form five guidelines? Number one, a bishop is to seek out the poor as the Lord hath commanded and administer to their needs. Number two, in caring for the needy, a bishop exercises discernment, sound judgment, balance, and compassion. Church resources represent a sacred trust. Number three, those receiving welfare assistance are to work to the extent of their ability for that which they receive. Number four, the assistance given by the bishop is temporary rather than ongoing. Number five, the bishop assists with basic life-sustaining goods and services. He sustains lives rather than a lifestyle. Let me illustrate with a sacred experience which brought these guidelines together in blessing the lives of those in need. While serving as a bishop one cold winter day, I visited an elderly couple who lived in a small duplex. The modest home was heated by a small heatrola, a coal-burning device. As I approached the home, I met the 82-year-old husband, his aged body bent in the driving snow, as he gathered a few pieces of wet coal from his meager supply of fuel. I helped him with his burden, but made a solemn resolve, I'm going to do more. I prayed and I pondered as bishops pray and pondered, seeking a solution. Step by step, the inspiration came. 
In the ward was an unemployed carpenter. He had no fuel for his furnace, but he was too proud to receive help from the welfare program. He needed the fuel to keep his house warm. I suggested to the carpenter a way he could work for the help he received. Would he build a coal shed for a wonderful couple who needed such? Of course, he replied. Now, where were we to get the materials? I approached the proprietors of a local lumber yard from whom we frequently purchased products. Brother Ashton would know the man. One was named Gibb, one was named George. I said to them on that occasion, How would you two men like to paint a bright spot on your souls today? <laughs> Not knowing exactly what I meant, they agreed readily. They were invited to donate the lumber and the hardware for the coal shed. Within days, the project was completed, and I was invited to inspect the outcome. The coal shed was simply beautiful in its sleek coat and covering of battleship gray paint. The carpenter, who was a high priest, testified that he had actually felt inspired in building that coal shed. My older friend, with obvious appreciation, stroked the wall of the shed. He pointed out to me the wide door, and then he opened to my view the supply of dry coal which filled the shed to its capacity. In a voice filled with emotion and in words I shall ever treasure, he said, Bishop, take a look at the finest coal shed a man ever had. Its beauty was only surpassed by the pride in the builder's heart. And the elderly recipient, he labored each day at the ward chapel, dusting the benches, vacuuming the carpet runners, arranging the hymn books. He, too, worked for that which he had received. Once again, the welfare plan of the Lord had blessed the lives of his children. Brethren, may our Heavenly Father guide the priesthood of this Church, that we may be obedient to the revelation of the Lord to the Prophet Joseph Smith. Remember in all things the poor and the needy, the sick and the afflicted. For he that doeth not these things, the same is not my disciple. We will qualify as his disciples when we hear and heed the counsel from the prophet Isaiah, in which he described the true fast. He said, is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? And then the promise, Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Then shalt thou cry, and he shall say, Here I am. And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought. And thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. 
May this be our blessing, brethren, as priesthood holders of God. I ask humbly, as I bear you my witness that this work is true, and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.